you can turn to Daniel chapter 7. We are exactly at the midway point in our series, Hope in Exile, as we're preaching through the book of Daniel. Um, Part two of the Daniel study guides are now available. If you didn't grab one when you came in, you can grab one when you get out. Sermon notes, community group questions, personal quiet time. Now, when I say that we are at the midway point, this represents a pretty massive pivot in this series. Because up to this point, we've been looking at all sorts of stories and narratives and history of Daniel and his friends. They've been exiled. They've been, they've been, they've been taken, stripped from their homes in Israel, taken to Babylon, never to see their families again, never to see their country. They've been enrolled in the dark arts, enslaved in the king's service. They've been castrated, made eunuchs. Um, they're having kind of a bad, bad life okay, at this point. And we've been really looking at, in these first six chapters, how in the world did these men, the people of God, not merely survive in exile, but how, in fact, did they thrive? And what does that mean for us? As, how does God call us? to spiritually thrive in our Babylon. That's been the, that's been the first six, six chapters in Daniel. But like I said, we have a massive pivot because we go from stories and narrative and history to smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and the fires of judgment. And, you know, it's like, whoa, what, what, do, we, what do we do with this? And oftentimes my experience as believers, uh, what I've seen is that we have two kind of equal but opposite and equally harmful reactions when we come to these kinds of pieces of literature, whether it be in Revelation or in Daniel or in Ezekiel, what we kind of call apocalyptic literature, which is sort of filled with all these strange images and sights and sounds. One thing that we can do is that we can develop an unhealthy obsession with it. It was 1995, and a now infamous series of books began to make their way on the scene. What were they? Left behind, okay? It rejuvenated Kirk Cameron's acting career. It was beautiful, right? So, so these Left Behind book series, in which, which, okay, I'm not going to make any editorial comment, but they're Christian fiction um, that take a particular perspective of the end times and use it sort of, sort of foretell, here's, here's how this all might play out. It's actually spawned a whole cottage industry of video games and board games. Anybody else have the board game in here? Anyway. Good New Year's Eve entertainment. But nonetheless, okay, over 20 years, ready for this? 65 million copies of that, of that series have been sold. Okay, total books in that Left Behind series. 65 million. Other than the Bible, more than any other single piece of Christian literature in history. So you could take Calvin, Luther, Piper, Augustine, Edward, Sproul, Spurgeon, just keep adding the names, add all of their stuff together, wouldn't even make a dent in the sales of that series of books. If nothing else, it literally shows us that Christian theology has been planted by Christian, supplanted by Christian fiction. Okay? So there, there can be a point in our Christian lives where we can become too obsessed with this, too hyper-focused, and to the neglect of the rest of the study of God's word. And as much as that might be true for some of us here, I don't think it's most of us. See, I think most of us here, a lot of us here anyway, has sort of been burned on that. You know, we stayed up late at night in the 70s reading The Late Great Planet Earth, and Antichrist was not on the earth, and Jesus didn't come back, and 
for like, okay, I've been there, done that, doomsday, I'm just kind of, I'm jaded by it, I'm just, uh. or you come to a text like this, and you're like confused, it's like, this is weird, this is bizarre, this is sort of like, this is sort of animated, cartoonish, I don't even know what to, what to make of it, and what we end up doing is sort of giving up on it, sort of having an unhealthy neglect of it, and, and I want to say something that will speak right to both of these errors. As when the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 said, all scripture is God-breathed, what was he speaking of? The Old Testament, every single bit of it. In fact, we're going we're to see in a minute how, um, I mean, John quotes Daniel extensively this chapter. Okay? Jesus quotes Daniel extensively this chapter. All scripture is God-breathed which means Daniel 7 is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness. But understand, it's not given to us primarily for speculation. We need to be content with the answers that Scripture gives us about certain questions. And we need to understand the main point okay, um, for Daniel giving these visions was not to send the people of God running home to hide away in their closets and store up their canned goods. Okay, That, that wasn't the point. The point was that they would have hope. The point is that they would look out over the gaze of the cultural landscape and they would see these kings that look insurmountable and ominous and awful and these terrible kingdoms and know with one little word, God shall fail them. Don't worry, people of God. Have hope. Now, as we dive into this text, just a couple of notes about the way apocalyptic literature functions. It's really strange to us, strange stuff. It wouldn't have been so strange to the original readers. You know, for us, tweets make sense, emojis make sense, okay, those sorts of things. They're sort of our way to kind of spice up our, our social media and our entertainment. That's, in a lot of ways, the way apocalyptic worked, okay? So, so the ancients, as they told stories, oftentimes they would tell history and narrative, and they would sort of put on the soundtrack, so to speak, of this literature to connect heart and mind, okay, logic and emotions. You see, God doesn't want us to come to Daniel and, and walk away having just merely a bunch of intellectual knowledge. He wants it to move our hearts. He wants us to be stirred and moved to action. So if you think about whatever your, fam- whatever your favorite movie is, now remember, every famous movie has a famous soundtrack, right? So, so even if you're not a nerd, Okay, when, when, when Star Wars comes on a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and the scroll begins on the screen, everyone here knows that anthem, right? Okay? Josh is going to do it for a communion response. It's going to be awesome. Okay? The, the, the trumpet fanfare. Okay? Or if you're a child of the 80s, what about Ferris Bueller when he gets into the 1957 um, Ferrari convertible, and he's pulling out of Cameron's garage, and his dad's Ferrari, and he's cranking up the music, oh yeah, that's right, oh yeah, and, he, and, it, and it's pulsating and vibrating, you're like, this is, I wish I was Ferris Bueller, okay, I mean, this is kind of cool, or if you're a child of the 60s or 70s, okay, think about the movie Easy Rider with Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper on their chopper, and they're cruising down the road, Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild, blaring in the background, now can you watch those movies without a soundtrack? Of course, of course you can, do they make sense? Absolutely. Can you follow them? Do you know the plot line? Oh, yeah. But you wouldn't be as moved. Your heart wouldn't be as touched. Your emotions would not be 
as stirred. That's, that's what apocalyptic literature does for us biblically. Okay, now what's the main idea in this particular piece of apocalyptic in Daniel 7? One verse, I think, encapsulates the whole thing. Actually, it encapsulates the whole book, but particularly our text this morning. Verse 27 says this, God's kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Easily stated, not so easily believed. See, God's demise, regardless of what the political landscape and the cultural landscape and the world landscape looks like today, God's demise has been greatly exaggerated, Four Oaks. Do you realize that? When we look out over the landscape and see ISIS and the election and Putin and Castro, Castro is still at it, okay? Chavez, I mean, we just, we're like, oh my gosh, there's this endless parade of, of tyrants and dictators and humanity, and it's just... Uh, just remember something. With one little word, he shall fail them. That's, that's what Daniel wants to communicate to us this morning. See, I'm going to make the case. See, for a lot of us, maybe we struggle on the global side. But a lot of us just struggle on the day-to-day personal. God, where, where are you? <laughs> I've got beasts and kingdoms that are raging for my soul today. I've got marriage and finances and kids and struggles and illness and disease. And, and, and let me just tell you something. I think Daniel would tell us, we just don't need new relationships or new leaders or new political choices or better paying jobs, okay? Or, and by the way, we probably need all those things, right, on some level. It's not what we need the most, What we need the most this morning, I picked up this word this week, is ballast, is weight. We need roots as the people of God. See, that's the soundtrack we want to cue up this morning to this text. So we're going to dive in. We're going to read the whole thing. We're not going to chop it up. It's going to take a little bit of time. I think it's worth it. We're appropriately calling this sermon the soundtrack of the apocalypse. Josh cleared it. He said that was okay. All right, here we go. Let's read this. It'll take us a couple minutes. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were staring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and a dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots." And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So that's the first little vision. 
this sort of terrifying image of four beasts, and then it switches gears. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let me pause right there and simply prepare us for what's coming next. Daniel sort of gives us, here's, here's what's happening on earth. Now, here's what's happening in heaven. Okay, so you have these two realities. And then lastly, he's going to close and say, now, now let, me, let me tell you a few more specific things about the life of the people of God here on earth. Okay, so that's, he kind of like zeroes in. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. We could see why. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with his teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before, which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. Now as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a times, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. And that's one of our elders, Ron Machado, to pray for us as we ask God's help. Heavenly Father, we come to sit under your word. We praise you as awesome high lifted up. So many things we can gather under in unity, but no greater than to worship the God 
of all creation. Uh, This uh, prophetic uh, witness here of Daniel, uh, we only need to look to that which is of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and the hope gained from uh, those prophecies uh, fulfilled in such great measure by your powerful hand. So let us humbly come under your word today. Uh, give Pastor Paul the words that burn in our hearts to help us follow you as Jesus proclaimed. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Be with us now, church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ron. It says in the text that this is happening, this vision during the first year of Belshazzar, who was the last Babylonian king, about 550 B.C. Now, remember last week, if you were with us in chapter 6, we looked at how chapter 6 details the fall of Belshazzar and how Persia comes in and wipes out Babylon. But we kind of have like a prequel here, so to speak. Okay, so it's chapter 7 chronologically happens before chapter 6. And we have to say, why did Daniel compile the, the material in this way? Okay, you've got to remember... Did I do that bad a job on the baby dedication? I thought it was pretty good myself. But anyway, you're good. Mom, you can stay around. You've earned the right, believe me, to stay in here with that baby. Why would Daniel arrange the material this way? Think about who's reading this. These are Jews, okay, who've been returned most likely to their homeland already. And they are reading this about these four kings And they would have immediately associated, okay, this line, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, with Babylon, and they would have said, oh, oh, okay, I get it. Part of this prophecy has already come true. These four kings, oh, you wait a minute. You know, God kept his word about taking down this particular kingdom. We can trust God's word that he knows what he's doing. Folks, I want you to walk out of here this morning emboldened, emboldened in the, in the word of God, the promises of God, that God does all his holy will through his word. God said, I'm going to take all four kingdoms down, and God is going to be true to his word, For Oaks, We can have confidence the, this day because we too, just like the original readers, we already know what's going to happen. So if you're, if you're an FSU fan, it was a great game last night. But you go home today, and you're just sort of pining away for the days of the national championship, right? You just kind of like, you want to relive those glory moments. And you decided to pop in a tape of the 2014 Rose Bowl, okay? And you want to watch Auburn and FSU. Now, I know in that first half that many of you were at the point of despair. And the reason I know this is because you texted me, okay? And I had to pastor you through the first half, okay? (laughs) Jesus is Lord. His kingdom is coming back. It's going to be okay. 21 to 3, and then like roaring back in the second half, right? Okay, win on the Kelvin Benjamin touchdown pass with a few seconds to go. Now, as you're watching that game this afternoon, and I know some of you actually will do this, okay? All right, so as some of you are watching this game this afternoon, and and you're watching this first half, will you be anxious, Will you be worried? Will you be depressed? Will you be fretting? No way. You're going to be chilling with your covenant beverage and hanging out and watching this thing go down because why? You know what's going to happen. 
Folks, that's, that's what Daniel wants to lay on us this morning. He wants to say, people of God, stop your fretting. Stop your worrying. Not that I don't care about all these things, because I do. On the macro level, on the micro level in your life. But you can trust me. So two things that we want to hit on quickly this morning. It's a big text. We can't hit every detail, but the two primary themes we want to hit this morning are these. Dominion demanded. We're going to see these four kingdoms demanding dominion over this earth. And then lastly, we're going to see dominion denied. Dominion denied. Dominion demanded. Let's look at the text. Four beasts coming out of the sea. Just remember, the, the, Isra- the, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. Like many ancients, the sea was a foreboding, awful, scary kind of place. Okay? And, and so it was full of darkness and dread and evil. And it says that these beasts are coming for them from the four corners of the world. And remember, in apocalyptic literature, not every single detail necessarily means something. It's meant to paint a picture for us. And the idea here from Daniel is that you have the kingdoms of the world unified in their evil intent, spreading out to make havoc on mankind. You know, if you want to cue up the soundtrack here, something wicked this way comes. Okay? That, that, that's what, that's what the, these people who are reading this for the first time are experiencing. And then it lists out, and it tells us in the text, these are four kings. And so scholars have debated this, and, and, and I'm going to present to you what I think is most likely. Understand this is all tentative, there's a reason in, in po- apocalyptic literature, God doesn't always tell us exactly what something is. And why is that? Because it's not the most important thing. See, it's not the most important thing. If it was the most important thing, he would have told you. Like, Jesus died. He rose again. He died for your sins. Those are important things. It's crystal clear. Daniel is wanting to, to, to paint a picture for us and to leave an impression for us. And it is First of all, of just holy terror, all these dominions demanding, demanding authority, demanding rule. So the lion, which is ferocious, it aspires to dominate, has this weird imagery, this this man-animal imagery. And most scholars think this probably refers to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Because after all, remember, Nebuchadnezzar went from powerful to what? Four, walking on all fours, lost his mind before God ultimately restored him. We have this bear. This bear is a picture of someone who's ravenous and hungry. Just kind of picture the bear. He's laying on his side with kind of three spare ribs left over from his mouth. It's like Josh and I when we go to Four Rivers, okay? We're just kind of laying there, and we're still hungry even after we've eaten way too much, okay? And, and so this idea is that this is an insatiable power. It's never satisfied. Most scholars identify this with, with Persia, because at that time, as bad as Babylon was, it was like kindergarten compared to Persia. Persia came, it's, it just kept conquering and conquering and conquering and conquering. And so if you see a lot of the old, you know, the, you know, the, the, the movies of, of empires fighting empires and 300 and all the, you know, Thermopylae, all those things, it's all because of the Persian Empire. They would not be sedated. They would not be satisfied. They were, they were taking over like a disease. Then we have this leopard. Leopard is swift. It's stealthy. It's, it attacks. It constantly attacks. Most scholars think this probably refers to ancient Greece. 
in Alexander the Great. So if you're, you're a classical student, world civilization student, you know that when Alexander, he spent about a year of his reign at home, and then the rest of the time was away because he moved like a cat, okay? So he would conquer Macedonia and modern-day Greece and Albania, North Africa, all of the Persian Empire, on into uh, present-day India, Okay, so, so, so it was, and, and guys, that Greek culture continues to exert an amazing influence worldwide. It was, a, it was an influence of ideas and culture and art and forms. But these three, like all other kingdoms, had their day in the sun. And then it says that you have this fourth beast. And, and Daniel spends quite a bit of time talking about this fourth beast. It's powerful. It says it has its ten horns. Don't try to match these up to like 10 modern day countries in Europe and all that sort of stuff, okay? Horn is a symbol of power. Tenfold power. It's crushing, breaking, stomping. And it says this little horn comes up from this, from this, from this, this kingdom and, and dominates like nothing the world has ever seen before. Now, before we speculate, and that's what all it will be is speculation, before we speculate what that means for us today, let's remind ourselves what Daniel is trying to do. See, this stuff is bizarro to us, right? This is like something you would read in the 60s if you were taking something illegal, right? So this is like, what is this? For the original leaders, readers, though, not so much, these would have been commonplace to them. It would have made an oppression on them. It would evoke terror and horror, fright. Just imagine, family, you sit around for a little Sunday night TV, okay? In, in our home, we used to watch the, 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 the Wide World of Disney, okay? So we, we, we would come in, and we would, we, would, we would watch. Just imagine, instead of your favorite Davy Crockett show as a family coming on, you, all, you automatically have a documentary about nuclear holocaust, and concentration camps, and terrorist attacks, and chemical weapons. Just imagine the dread and the fear that would come over you as a family. That's, that's what is going on in this text. These beasts are demanding dominion. And let me just tell you what I think Daniel does here. This idea of a progressive view of history, that people are getting better and better, and societies are becoming better and better. Now, technologically, that may be true, although it will ultimately probably destroy us, okay? But when it comes to the human soul, it could not be more wrong. And this is where it's so important for folks to have a biblical worldview, to have your thoughts, emotions, mind informed by the Word of God and not by culture. Daniel takes a stake and thrusts it into the heart of the draconian view of, of, the, of the progressive view of history. Daniel says, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you something. Yes, it, and we find in other places in Scripture, at Revelation, the kingdom of God is advancing. It's moving. It's growing. We see this today. At the same time, evil is intensifying. Evil is paralleling it. Evil is walking right alongside. And in a lot of ways, it's not getting better and better. What is it? It's getting worse and worse. And you don't, now, if that strikes you the wrong way, you know, biblically or politically or however you orient these things, let me just say that 
Human history self-attests to this, does it not? The 20th century was going to be the age of enlightenment. Modern technology and industry and man's progress, that's where this progressive view of history really took root. The last 125 years up to the present day have been the deadliest in world history, and it's not even close. And if you want to be depressed, just go start Googling some of this stuff. World, world War I alone, 17 million military and civilian deaths, 17 million. We can't, we can't even wrap our minds around that. In 1932, 7 million Ukrainians were starved to death intentionally by Stalin, who, who should not be a hero of ideological thought, 7 million because he wanted to feed the rest of his empire and said the Ukrainians can fend for their own, 7 million. 6 million Jews in the Holocaust, you know. 58 million babies killed by abortion. Global terrorism. Boko Haram and ISIS and mass graves and terrorist bombings. But here's something that we have to contend with that Daniel puts his finger on. See, those things are true for all people in all times and all places. Just like the rain falls on the just and the unjust, earthquakes, natural disasters, all those things, they fall on the just and the unjust. But look at verse 21 and 25. Daniel says, not only are things going to be intensifying in their evil, generally, but they're going to be particularly intensifying towards whom? Us, the people of God. See, the, the, verse 21, the beast is making war against God's people. In fact, verse 25 says, it is wearing them out. See, we cannot be naive that while, while he who is in us is greater, right? The Holy Spirit is greater. Just know Satan wants to eat your lunch. Satan would love for me to do something scandalous and disqualify myself from ministry. Men, Satan would love for you to commit adultery or become addicted to pornography and destroy your family. Wives, Satan would love to disrupt, disrupt the rhythm and fabric of your home life and sacrifice your kids on the altar of whatever. See, we have to take what he's saying seriously this life for God's people will be full of trouble and pain and hardship. Just, looking, just watch the news this week. So as, as rebel forces are retaking fought over dirt in Iraq and as they're approaching Mosul, what are they finding? They're finding villages that have been completely and utterly decimated and wiped out. These are Christian villages. Houses of worship destroyed. But, 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 but even beyond that, Whole families, tribes, generations, churches, communities slaughtered for no other reason than that they will not bow the knee. Now, guys, understand something. I don't say that this morning to be a talk radio host and incite you towards anger or racism or like, we just go to, you know, that's because we have to balance this with what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for ISIS. Pray for them. Okay? Share the gospel with your, with your Muslim neighbor. Love them. Serve them. Okay? This, is, this, is, this is not a political statement. Reach out to them. I simply point this out 
to say what Daniel 7 is saying. See, Daniel 7 is a giant truth in advertising sticker on the Christian faith. That's what it is. So many of you know Pastor Lance, Lance Olam. He's our Midtown um, congregational pastor. Recently went through a kidney uh, transplant. He's alive and well. And um, this, this kidney, by the way, I mean, literally saved his life. So if we were 75 years ago, 50 years ago, when they didn't do things like this, you just die a slow, agonizing death. So he had no hope physically without it. And they said, now this is going to save your life, but let, let me, we have to warn you, okay? There, there, there's a price to pay for this transplant, okay? First of all, okay, um, you've got a whole host of physical complications you've got to deal with the rest of your life. You're going to have to take blood work all the time. You're going to have to drive to Gainesville to see doctors. Driving to Gainesville is bad enough, but to have to see doctors as well, okay? They have to, he has to take a, a, a handful of meds that would choke a horse, okay? He has to continue to fight for his survival. Now, understand, with all those costs, would he do it again? Of course. Of course. It saved his life. Guys, so, so, so understand something. When the benefits that the gospel procures for us, we, we can't calculate them. Forgiveness of sins, eternal rest with, with Jesus in heaven. We have restored and renewed relationship with the God of the universe. God looks at us and not only says not guilty, but he says my adopted son and daughter because of Jesus Christ. Nothing changes that. Okay? We need to proclaim that good news, but yet... Yet, we have to say, along with Jesus, in this life, you will have trouble. If they persecute me, by all means, Peter, they're going to persecute you. And it's the way it always is and always will be this side of heaven for the people of God. Guys, where in your life does your discipleship cost you? Where? Where does it happen for you in your job or in your relationships or in the way that you deal with your business transactions or the way that you decide that you have to parent your kids and say no to certain things and everybody else looks at you like you are crazy? Okay. Where does it cost you? Where does it cost us financially? I just think, guys, think about what a bizarre thing that we do when we take up an offering every week. And, and oftentimes as God's people, we can look at that check that we cut or the, or the bank statement that gets withdrawn and we could say, oh my gosh, what could I do with this? What could I do with this? There's so much. There's this trip I want to take or there's this thing I want to buy or there's this need that seems so, so pressing. Guys, when we say yes to the kingdom of God, we say yes to generosity. We leverage our lives because only one kingdom at the end of the day will be standing. One kingdom. And that's God's kingdom. And so we, as God's people, joyfully, gladly give up those things that we cannot take with us, that we cannot hold on to. Parents, your children don't need your inheritance. It's nice when they get it, okay? That's not what they need the most, okay? They need your gospel legacy and heart. They need to see your generosity modeled for them because we're leveraging for the kingdom of God. Now, back to that question. I'm not skipping it. Who is this fourth person, fourth kingdom? 
And by the way, guys, it's not wrong to ask. It's not wrong to ask who else asked. Daniel, okay? But we just have to be content with the answer God gives. Okay? We have to be content with, we have to be content with that answer. So, so anything we say here is speculation. The original audience, was, was, which was really in you know, post-exilic Israel, so the, the people are back in Israel, and by this time, the Babylonians had gone down for the count. Okay? The, the Persians were gone, the Greeks had come and gone, and who had taken over? Rome. And you can better believe no one had ever seen a kingdom like this, and maybe since, by the way, in terms of its ruthlessness and power and authority and ruling with the iron hand. Certainly, these people would have seen Rome as that fourth beast. Now, at the same time, there's others. I'm just giving you a variety of options. There's other people who would say, yes, that's true, but you know what? In every age and every time God's people, there's always someone trying to destroy the people of God. So if you lived in Nazi Germany in the 30s and you were to read Daniel 7, what would you have thought? Oh, yeah, that's kind of serious. If you're in Iraq and ISIS is bearing down on you, who would you think? So that could be an option as well, or all of the above, that this beast represents the personification of evil arrayed against God's people in every generation. Others see this little horn as the same person that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness. John, in 1 John 2, calls him the Antichrist. It's interesting, John says, you know, you've heard of Antichrist, Antichrist is coming, but I'll tell you, the Antichrist is here. What What does John mean? There's an Antichrist with every age. But yet, there's coming one in which it's personified, evil's particularly personified. How does this all work out? We don't know. We don't know. We just have to accept what God tells us here. But the whole point is not to speculate who. The whole point is for you to know that there are dominions arrayed against the, pe- the, pe- the people of God demanding, okay, demanding dominion. And here's where we find the turning point in the text in verse 8. Dominion denied. You know, if you're an NBA basketball fan, when Dikembe Mutombo would play and he would block your shot at the rim, what would he do? He would wag his finger, okay? This is, this is, this is the great finger wag of God. Okay, look at verses 8 and 9. There is an abrupt transition from the sea, which is chaos and noise and apocalypse and beast and craziness and persecution, to the courtroom, okay, to the courtroom. And we know it's the courtroom because we see these these books of judgment are opened. Why the courtroom? And it's interesting, if you think about the great trials of history, historical or fictional, O.J. Simpson or Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird or Witness for the Prosecution okay, or the ridiculous Bates character on Downton Abbey, right? Okay, so, so anytime there is a verdict to be read in the courtroom, what is going on in the courtroom? What is it? Silence. The tension is so thick you could cut it with a knife. What will happen? And here in the text it says that God walks in and everything just stops. There's absolute silence. All eyes are fixed on the Ancient of Days who seats himself 
as the judge, and you know this is not a judge. Okay, this is not Judge Wapner. Remember that from the People's Court? Remember, okay, this is not, not to be trifled. Well, you don't trifle with him, okay, but not to be trifled with. Look at the image. He has these robes which signify his purity, his righteousness. He's an honest judge. He's a pure judge. There's fire. This idea, his rule is untouchable. He's unconquerable. You have all these multitude of witnesses arrayed around him to, 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 to give witness to the verdict he's about to render. And the judgment books are opened. And notice how seemingly effortless it is for the king of days, for the ancient of days, to, to crush this horn. Now look at this, okay? He doesn't tell us how he crushed it, okay? All it says is that he gave a word. Just a word. Because think about all the things that are arrayed against you in your life. The beast, the what, whatever those things represent for you. And God says, I've got this. With one little word. You know, when we sing Mighty Fortress, what does it say? The prince of darkness grim. See, we're all have some sort of prince of darkness that follows us. One little word shall fail him. One little word. Where do you need to believe that? Where do you need to trust God for that in your life? Because there's an incredibly encouraging, hopeful thing when it talks about this idea for a time's time and a half. You know, some have like speculated this is three and a half weeks, it's three and a half years, and they try to like piece all this together with what it says in Revelation, and they end up coming out like Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Remember his, like, all his charts in his little shed where he was going crazy? That's not the point, okay? What, God, what I think Daniel is saying is that, church, our time of hardship and persecution, it is real. Oh, it's real. It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not merely spiritual. It's not, you know... A figment of your imagination. It's real, but you know what? It's limited. It's limited. It's of a limited duration. Daniel's saying, okay, kingdoms of the world, you get three and a half weeks, three and a half years. You may seem like it's three and a half decades, Pastor Paul. Almost seems like three and a half lifetimes. He said, but it's for you, the people of God, a light momentary affliction. Now, how can Paul say that in 2 Corinthians? Because he says, God is preparing for us as his people an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh them all. God, give us eyes of faith to see this. To be able to stare down the beast or the bear or the leopard or the lion or this little horn you may say, Pastor Paul, I, I'm just so weak. I just, I need faith. I need eyes of faith. I'm just so discouraged. I'm disheartened. I'm losing heart. I'm despairing. Where would God have you look this morning? Look at verse 13. We're going to close with this. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom. You know, this idea of clouds was always, for Jewish writers, a sign of God's presence. 
And here we have the, the, the Ancient of Days giving authority to this Son of Man. And Jewish scholars for centuries speculated, who is the Son of Man? Who is going to literally ride in on the clouds to save the day? Interesting, in Mark 14, they asked Jesus who he was. Now listen to what he says. And watch this text come alive for you. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Now listen to this, going all Daniel 7. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. They knew exactly what he was saying. He goes, I am that Son of Man. I'm riding on the clouds. I'm facing down all of these beasts, but I'm going to do something that you don't expect me to do. In order to conquer them, I have to die. I have to give my life. I have to lay it down for my people, and then I will be raised up. What is your beast this morning? What is the thing that that wreaks havoc in your soul? Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. And because I've come riding on the clouds and have laid down my life for you and paid the penalty of sin for you and stored you in relationship to the God of the universe, you can have hope. You can trust me. Just just of a limited time, I'm going to make all things new. He closes with this. This is an interesting, interesting quote. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Now listen to this. But the saints, look at that, saints plural, not saint singular. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Guys, Jesus purchases the kingdom not just for you and me. He purchases the kingdom for us, for the family of God. See, what is one of the principal primary ways that God sustains his people, preserves them, encourages them, carries them to the end, it is through the family of God. Because I pray that God would give you new eyes to see this morning what it means to belong to his people as a church. God is going to preserve his church despite this clear and present cultural danger. But one of the primary ways he does that alongside of his word with his spirit is through the people of God. Have you ever thought about four oaks for yourself in that way? Ben Franklin had had an interesting quote. He said this about the revolution. He said, we shall hang together or surely we shall hang apart, right? Guys, we stand in the midst of which for us in our country is unprecedented cultural upheaval. Guys, the way this coming storm is weathered is by together, by the people of God. Folks, I'm really asking and praying during this season, particularly, that God gives you a renewed vision for what it means to be a part of the family of God. We need each other. And when the Son of Man comes riding in to save the day, he saves it for his saints. That's us. We need each other. I need you. What does Martin Luther say 
at the end of that great hymn, the body they may kill. Just remember that. The body they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. And let's leave it with this. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray.